The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to another edition of Commercial Free Podcasting brought to you by me. There are no sponsors this week. Let's Fix Work is committed to giving you long-form, uninterrupted content all summer long, and we're continuing that streak with my dear friend, Dan Cockrell. Dan is a former Walt Disney executive, but he recently retired and decided to double down on his skills as a keynote speaker, a leadership consultant, and a coach. And as you'll hear in this conversation, he's all about innovation, creativity, taking risks, and really not being afraid of making mistakes. I thought the uninterrupted conversation would be a good one for this summer because it may inspire you to think a little bit about your career journey. Have you been in a job for a long period of time? Have you bounced around? Are you taking risks? Are you living up to your full potential? Dan covers all of this and more, and it's just a fun, interesting conversation. So sit tight, everybody. Right after the break, I'll be back with Dan Cockrell and more Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Dan. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here, Lori, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, listen, no one can tell your story like you can. So I wonder if you can share with us, what's your background? What's your career? Why are you here today on my podcast? Oh, boy. Well, my background, my story starts with once upon a time. Once upon a time, I was growing up and my father was in the hotel business with Marriott. And so we moved all over the United States. And I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in Rockville, Maryland. I went to Boston University. I studied political science, which meant, in my case, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I ended up working at on the Walt Disney World College program the year after my sophomore year, my uh, the summer. We have about 6,000 cast members on the college program at any given time at Walt Disney World. It's a great source of labor and a great source of experience for them. And I worked at the uh, Contemporary Hotel, which was one of the first Disney hotels that was built back in 1971. I went back to school for two years. And when I graduated, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I called Walt Disney World back and I said, do you have any opportunities? And they said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, what do you have? And they said, well, we have a job in the parking lot at Epcot. And I said, that's perfect. I was hoping you'd say parking lot at Epcot. So I left BU. I drove down to Walt Disney World. And my first full-time job after getting my four-year degree from a fine university was parking cars at Epcot in Florida. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I think good, honest, hard work builds character and it really teaches you the foundations of how to work and why you work and gives you some time to think about who you are and what you believe in. What do you think about that? I couldn't say it better. And my story was not a unique story. If you talk to many of the leaders, general managers, and executives of Walt Disney World, many of them, if not most of them, started on the front line. They started driving boats or working in the attraction areas. It's really important at Disney that people understand that's where the value is created. Uh, the interaction 
between the guest and the cast member, as we call them at Walt Disney World cast members, our employees. It's important to understand that. And I ended up, after getting there, I had a 26-year career with the company, and uh, I never forgot what it was like to be parking cars and what it was like to be a frontline cast member and that point of view and how important it was as I progressed through my career to remember how important it was to support them, to make sure they were trained, motivated, appreciated, respected, because at the end of the day, they really are the ones creating the value. Uh, the guests didn't rate my performance as an executive in the company. They're rating the performance of the hundreds of cast members they're interacting with. And based on that, they decide whether to come back or not. So it's just a good common sense approach, I think. Yeah, I don't disagree. You're not a leadership podcast unless you have an ex-Disney executive on your podcast to talk about leadership. You know, like it's one of those things. It's a rite of passage. And I wonder what makes Disney the gold standard regarding employee experience, training, development. Like what is it about Disney that just makes it so excellent and such a good living, breathing example of what it means to have a healthy, vibrant, robust organization? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think from my experiences over time, there are some formulas and some patterns that I think emerge with companies over time. And usually the common story is the founder founds the company. They have an incredible drive. They have incredible success. The next generation takes over. Maybe it even gets better. The third generation takes over and they kind of lose their way. They start to try new things. They try to extend their brand. They try to do things that are not part of their core competency or culture. They kind of lose their way and then they get back to basics. And if they're lucky, they refine themselves. And I think the Walt Disney Company has had that same story. But uh, we've had the opportunity, I think, over a couple of our CEOs, you know, Mike Leisner and coming in in 1984 and really kind of realizing the value of the company and the heritage of the company and taking advantage of that and then transitioning to Bob Iger more recently and the way he's led us. So we're kind of two ends of the spectrum. I think one end, we know that we have to be relevant. We have to be on the cutting edge of entertainment. We have to understand our audience. And our audience are people who are 70 years old, 60 years old, 40 years old, and 10 years old. And being making sure that we're relevant with them and we are challenging the things that we've done in the past to reinvent ourselves and make sure that we continue to be a relevant place to visit. And at the other end of the spectrum, make sure we remember where we came from and keep the basic standards, the quality standards, the values that Walt Disney came up with is cling on to those and make sure. So the, the base of what we do is what Walt Disney envisioned, a, a clean family environment, safe environment where families can create memories together. And then the other end of the spectrum says, now, whatever technology or whatever storytelling you can do, go ahead and use technology and use the kind of future state to bring that together. And I think it's both of those. And it's very difficult because you never know if the next decision you're going to make is going to break with tradition or it's going to reinvent you and make you even better. And it's always a risk along the way, but you know, any company is. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about all the smart people I know in my own social circle who worked at Disney and went on to do great things, including the wife of my business coach, Jesse Itzler. His wife, Sarah Blakely, is the founder of Spanx. And her career began at Disney. She was a character and she worked her butt off and got promoted. And so a lot of good things come out of the Disney ecosystem. But I'm also thinking about a 60 Minutes episode that I saw maybe a year or two ago about the lower end of the Disney spectrum and how there are workers who 
in the city of Orlando can barely afford to live and are living in tenement buildings, motels, because the wage that they're earning at Disney is not meeting their basic needs. So forgive me for putting you in the situation to answer to that, because I don't think you represent Disney that way. But what is it about a corporation that provides such great wealth and also struggles at the bottom end of the spectrum to meet certain basic needs? Why does that happen? Can you speak to that? Generally, I can. Uh, greed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, and, and you're hitting it on, I was one of the representatives for the negotiating committee with our union at Walt Disney World. And I was in the middle of those conversations many times. I would tell you it's probably a problem as old as time of how do you distribute wealth? Yeah. Uh, my wife, is. I worked in France for five years at Disneyland Paris. And so we both gotten to live in two very different cultures. And in France, you know, medical care is free. The government really takes care of a lot of basic human needs. Now you pay a lot of taxes. And so you could argue that from a capitalism free enterprise standpoint, people are dissuaded from maybe being as aggressive growing companies because they know a larger cut of that investment is going to be taken by the government. Now, I think the United States is on the other end of the spectrum where, you know, how much money do people need? And yeah, we're okay. going to figure out how to redistribute those dollars. So I found myself getting involved in conversations in these negotiation meetings with we as a company, we have to continue to deliver shareholder value. Because if we don't, they're not going to invest in our company, our stock price will go down, and eventually we won't exist anymore. On the other hand of it, there's a corporate responsibility that we need to take care of our people. And then we also have to find the line between where we're supposed to fill in for what the government should be doing with on tax laws and, and that kind of thing. So I was... This wasn't the company line, but when Bernie Sanders really started going after, you know, he chose Disneyland and the Walt Disney Company and Disneyland in particular is one of his targets. And he talked about it every day. And I tell you, any big company doesn't like to be talked about every day by someone <laughs> like Bernie Sanders about how they should be doing better. But Disney, they're now at a, in the next year, I think they're going to be start having a $15 an hour starting rate at Disneyland. That's a good, good movement. Yeah. Yeah. And well, Disney World, we're the first in the industry and in the market in Orlando to move to $10 an hour starting rate. But the reality is there's still people that have families and they haven't, they work at Disney in a frontline role and they haven't moved up. The idea in you know, a career is you're going to start in the parking lot and over time you're going to move up through the organization. But that's just not the reality for everybody. And I think there's not as much of a safety net in the United States. And so I would tell you, the way I tee this up, most of the speeches I do, I always hit on the topic of problems and dilemmas. What I always ask people, and I'll ask you, Laura, because this is always fun to do, what is the difference between a problem and a dilemma? Well, I think a problem has a solution and a dilemma isn't easily solved. So I couldn't say it better myself. A problem has a solution. One plus one is two. A dilemma can only be managed and you're never finished with a dilemma. It's always in flux. And the day I let go of some things that I'd been treating as problems and realized there were dilemmas, I took a lot of pressure off myself and said, you know what? There's never going to be a day where this will be solved. I've just got to keep managing it and just understand the ambiguity that it's always going to be in flux. I'll jump topics, but I've been on the board of junior achievement for 16 years. And we go into schools to teach kids about the free enterprise system and entrepreneurship and leadership. And I share with them, I do a class on how to fill out a tax form. And we discuss the tax rates. And I always ask the class, what do you think about that? Should the tax be higher or lower? And everyone in the class says, well, it should be more. If you make more, you should share more. And other people say, well, if you work harder, you should make more. And I said, all right, you've now been introduced to the dilemma you're going to wrestle with 
the rest of your life. So there's no clear plan, but I think, and I don't think any countries figured it out. Some of the smaller Nordic countries have because their economies are strong. It's not a big population. But somewhere in that spectrum, there's a place for entrepreneurship, to drive economies forward, but you got to take care of people on an individual level and everyone figures out how to do that their own way. Yeah, that is so well said. That problem dilemma scenario is so interesting because I think in that is where real people can shine in tackling those dilemmas and show character. And there's really an opportunity for entrepreneurs to go in and look at dilemmas in a new way. And I know that you are doing some new things in your career. So how are you looking at dilemmas and how are you currently fixing work? Yeah. So the backstory about two years ago, my wife said, look, one of our children will be out of college next year and one will be in college and one will be leaving home to go to college. So uh, what's the plan? We've been at Disney 26 years. It's time to go do something else. So you know, I put my foot down and said, absolutely not. I'm retiring with the company because it's a great company. I love what I'm doing. And why would we take that risk? And so a year later, I left Disney. <laughs> Smart man. Made the right choice. My wife is very influential. Yeah, we decided we just... We made this big... And it was terrifying. No one leaves Disney. It is a great place. And to step away from, you know, my case, leading you know, 12,000 cast members of the Magic Kingdom and having 20 million visitors a year. I mean, it was just an incredible place to work with very talented people. But we decided we'd rather trade, I guess, freedom and life experiences for that. And uh, I asked her at one point, I said, well, all right, we'll go for it. But what if this doesn't work out? And she said, well, I guess you're just going to have to go get a job. And I said, you're usually the one that worries more than me. You sound pretty nonchalant about this. And she said, no, everyone will be fine. And my dad did this 13 years ago when he retired from Disney. So this was a calculated risk for me. And I've got incredible support from people. And I just decided I like to go out into the world, start my own company, and become a consultant to work with people and companies on how to put leadership in that will uh, create an environment where people can thrive. And by default, you get better results and better business results. And that is the goal. And so uh, the 26 years of... I had 19 jobs at Disney. And that 26-year period, I just met incredible people. I was trained really well. I was held highly accountable. And I learned a lot. And so just over a year ago was my last day at Magic Kingdom. And uh, we got started. And since then, I'm still getting used to not knowing what's happening 365 days from today. Because yes. my old job, I could tell you, in New Year's Eve at midnight, I'm going to be standing in front of Cinderella's castle, make sure the fireworks go off well. And then I'm going to say goodnight to all the cast members and I'll be home at three in the morning and I'll have that next day off and I'll go on the 2nd of January. I knew exactly what I was doing. And now I have about a 90-day window I see over. It's still, I'm trying to get used to that. On the other hand, the ability to do what I love doing every single day has been such a payoff and so rewarding. And these opportunities end up being random. And when people ask me what you're doing now, I say, I'm a farmer. I said, <laughs> yep, I plant seeds every day. I go out and I plant seeds. I and love it. Some of them sprout and some of them don't, won't sprout from a year from now. And some of them will never sprout. But you're out every day letting people know you're around. You're letting people know what you represent, what you can do, the skill sets you have. And that's what we've done. So the past year has been a whirlwind. I spent time I'm working with a hotel company in Croatia that is a privately held company that's growing very fast and they need help with uh, organizational structure and standards as they grow. And so I'm, I'm doing that with them. And they've hired my wife now also to help with recruitment and hiring. So we are a team. After the first two months after leaving Disney, 
my wife and I, we got through not getting divorced and not killing each other. And then we came out the other side even stronger, but it was pretty rough. (laughs) I would love to hear about that. I think that could be a whole podcast about change of life within the midlife, you know, and all of that going on. I I think that's really fascinating. One of the things that I think about self-employment is that it really drives us to understand who we are and what we stand for and what we won't stand for. And I know you have a set of leadership beliefs that are really important to you. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear about them. Yeah, I think... The thing I learned at Disney, and it really the reason I stayed there for 26 years is I believed in what the company was doing. And basically, the difference, I don't know if it's the difference at Disney, but something the company excelled in was having an extremely high expectation for its delivery of its products and services and knowing how important that brand was. And so we were held highly accountable to deliver at a world-class level every day with high volumes of people. But... At the same time, everyone was also held accountable to how they interacted with people and how they led people. And so what I've seen a lot of companies is you kind of pick. It's, you can go to a company, it's hardcore, and you get the results. And whatever you have to do to get the results, it doesn't matter. Just get the results, make the quarterly earnings, and we'll make money. And then there's other companies that say, we're going to create this great environment for people. But it's almost to the point where you forget why you exist and you're not delivering that world-class service. And so at Disney, we were held highly accountable to metrics and results. And we were also held highly accountable to how we treated people and how we led people. And we had measurements on both. I think that's the thing I've learned over time has been extremely helpful as I've gone out into the real world to talk about this. When I first start talking to people, I say, you know, before you can lead anyone, your family, anybody, you have to lead yourself. And you have to take care of yourself. You have the right health, go to the doctor, get the right exercise, diet, hydrate, have the right mindset, have the right emotional intelligence and how to deal with stress. You have to be good at time management. So, you know, you compare it to an airplane is when the oxygen mask drops, maybe you put it on first. On an airplane, you're supposed to put it on yourself first. But out in working, people think they got to take care of everyone else before themselves. They get burnt out and everyone loses. Yeah, they take care of nobody. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's important. The second thing is when I think about managing a team of people, and I I work with a lot of younger leaders and executives, I've been doing some executive coaching on how do you lead your team, the immediate circle of people around you that is going to be extension of you to get work done. I took a lot of these concepts. We worked closely with the Gallup organization when I worked at Disney, and they have a great leadership model, and they also have a great selection model and talent. And their formula says, if you pick the right people who have talents and have developed those talents and strengths that can apply to the job, you build strong relationships where people feel valued and listened to. You create clear expectations for performance and you reward and recognize that performance by following up either monetarily or through emotional support. You'll get the most out of your team. And so I use that model for ever since the late 90s. And I'm always looking at, do I have the right people on my team? Do I have the right talent on my team? Do I have the right strengths on my team? Do people trust me and do I trust them? Do they clearly know what they're supposed to be doing? And if they are, am I rewarding that and reinforcing that behavior? As my wife says, don't confuse simple with easy. It's a very simple concept. It's really hard to execute, but they're basic human traits. I love it. I'm a big fan of that kind of professional detachment. You know, you have to have enough attachment to your job and to your company to love it and to care about it and want to perform at an excellent level. But your point is well taken around taking care of yourself and almost putting yourself first to make sure you've got everything in your own life on lockdown. 
Because there is absolutely no way that if you're not rested, emotionally regulated, (laughs) happy, that you can go to work and then perform at a high level. So we couldn't be more aligned. You know, I just wonder what the role of the organization is. Because to your point earlier about Disney, more and more, there are gaps in what the government is doing. There are gaps in what families are delivering to the next generation of workers. There's gaps in our education system. So what do you do with a workforce that isn't educated like it was 20 years ago, isn't fed like it was 20 years ago, isn't rested like it's 20 years ago? Like, What's that responsibility to the labor pool? And what do you do if the labor pool isn't meeting your standards? Yeah. So in those cases, I think the companies have to get very innovative and start taking on more of that responsibility. And you can sit around all day long and talk about 20 years ago, how it was and why, why do we have to do this now? And we shouldn't be teaching kids about work ethic and we shouldn't have to do this. You can talk about that all day long, but the people who are available to work for you are the people who are available to work for you. And if they don't have the skill sets or the right attitude or the right approach to work, you better figure out how to train them and teach them that because your business won't be able to stay in business if you don't do that. And uh, you have to take much more ownership over that. At Disney, we were doing some tests where we can't find enough culinary leaders at the right level. And we just, that's such a big business. And there's so many culinary people are eating out. And so we just decided we're going to bring that in-house. So we hire people with no culinary experience. We have a training area. and We train them to have them move up through the ranks. We could tell them, go to culinary school and come back when you're done. But they may not have the money or the motivation or the ability to do that. And we can wait for them to come and they're never going to show up. So I think it really is, it comes back into take ownership of everything in the pipeline. And if it's not available to you, you need to create programs around it to put yourself in the right place. We had an exhibit at uh, Epcot when I was there, and it was all about programming, creating roller coasters and getting to ride the roller coasters. And it was an engineering company that sponsored it because they said, you know, we can wait for America to get on board with STEM education, or we can go out and start marketing it and try to get kids into that. Because if we don't, our business is going to be in big trouble in 10 years. And sure enough, here we are. Yeah, no joke. Well, it's interesting that we keep talking about the past or the future. You know, there's not a lot that we can do looking backwards. We can only do the best we can with going forward. But I wonder, what advice do you have for the 20-year-old version of yourself? Well, you know, it's funny. I've thought about this before. And I think we all talk about the connotation of you have regrets or not have regrets. And I don't really have many regrets. I look back at my 20-year-old self and the advice I would have given myself is, you know what, get even more experiences than you did. And like I said, in 26 years, I had 19 jobs. And I even look back saying, boy, what did you not get into that you could have learned more and done more? And I talk to kids all the time who... Well, I call them kids. They're young adults, but you know, they're getting out of school and they're really focused on, okay, what's my title going to be? What level am I going to the company? What's the pay? Our son, our oldest son went through that when he was looking for jobs. And he said, well, there's this one job is paying this. This other job is paying that. I said, Julian, you're making $0 today. So whatever you get is going to be a huge raise. So don't worry about how much money you're making. Go in and get a great experience. And once you've learned in that experience, go get another great experience and chain those together. Because the future is the world is changing really fast. It's the only thing we need to know, be able to know how to do is adapt to the future and be comfortable changing and adapting. And you know, I took my own advice last year when I left Disney. And I just said, okay, it's time to adapt. And it's time to go and try something totally new. And you know, so many more doors have opened today. I would go back again and just say, okay, what else could I have learned in my 20-year-old self? How much more could I have been reading? How much more could I have been 
curious and talking to people because all the experiences I've had today in my life are paying off tenfold. Yeah. Because now I travel to these countries. I'm not intimidated by going places because I've traveled many places and I've made so many mistakes in my career. I've learned from so many things that it's getting fun now because you actually are, you know, you start to, wisdom starts to seep in and realize, wow, I've done a lot and it makes you uh, that much more valuable to other people. That point around experience is so interesting to me because I graduated from college with over $40,000 in student debt in the late 90s. And I really felt like I had to chase money and get a job. And so I did. I went into corporate human resources. But to your point, just because I had that job in corporate resources and was making my regular you know, nut to Sally Mae didn't mean that I couldn't have done other things, right? I couldn't have read more or pursued more. And I really regret not learning salesmanship skills earlier on in my career because I couldn't sell for anything. I couldn't sell ideas. I couldn't influence until much later on when I actually studied it and learned how to do it. And had I done that earlier in my career, I still would have received a paycheck, right? You know, I still would have made my payment to my student loan company. But I just that insight you have is so interesting because that is one of my regrets. Not enough experiences. Even though I was limited, you know, in terms of how much money I had to absolutely make, I still could have done more. Yeah, it's definitely a mindset. And especially today and when you look at the access people have now. I mean, you can basically get your Harvard MBA from your living room. Now, you're not going to get the certificate or the network that comes with that, but you can get the same education doing that. And I've I met some people in Brazil a couple months ago when I was working down there who I spoke English with. I said, where did you learn English? And one person told me Netflix. The other person told me Google Translate. <laughs> Amazing. We come here and we say, well, I don't have the right app or I want to go to language school. What's the best one? And you know, these people are saying, there was no opportunity there. We had online access and we could learn it doing that. So yeah. it's, all, yeah. it's all relative, I guess. It is. It is. I love that mindset. Well, listen, I wonder what's next for you. You know, as we start to wrap up our conversation, you're working with people, you're helping organizations optimize talent. You're working with your wife, who, by the way, sounds lovely. Sounds like I need to get her on my podcast. Oh, you'd love talking to her. Yeah, she sounds fantastic. So what's next for you as a team, for you as Dan Cockrell, LLC? What are you doing? So our family, we have a small family. I'm an only child with three kids. So my three kids are the golden children of my parents. They have three grandkids and they're my kids. And so my parents are here in Orlando. Valor and I are selling our house in Florida. We're going to be moving out to Colorado and renting for a year in the Boulder area. And then eventually, we're going to figure out where we want to settle down. Right now, we just need to be near an airport. And we love the outdoors. And we love to ski and do all that. Our son is in Boston. Our daughter's a junior at CU Boulder. And our youngest is going to be a freshman at University of Denver. So we're taking everyone out to Colorado. <laughs> I love it. I'll join you. I love yeah. Colorado. Beautiful state. Except this week, they had snow. It's the end of May. Yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. Crazy. It's, Climate's insane. Well, listen, it's been fantastic to get to know you and to get to know your story. If more people want to connect with you and learn how you're fixing work and how you can help them fix work, where can they go? Yeah, so my website is dancockrell.com. All my information there, my cell phone number's on there, my email address is on there. And if people are interested in subscribing to my article of the week, every Friday morning, I send out an article of the week. I curate these from all the different things I read and I find the best articles and send them out with my sort of two cents on them. And if you want to, you can sign up for that on my website or you can text Dan, A-O-W, D-A-N-A-O-W, which is Dan Article of the Week, to 44222. Dan, A-O-W, to 44222. And it'll ask you for your email and you'll get signed up and I'll just put a little food for thought in your inbox every Friday morning. 
I love it. That's fantastic. Well, listen, it's been fantastic to have you as a guest on Let's Fix Work. Thank you very much, Lori. And I appreciate everyone listening. And I hope everyone has a great week figuring out how to get better. All right, everybody, sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. All executives need to be podcasting. Podcasts are the number one way for executives to create an authentic and trusting relationship with employees and potential customers. That's why my producer, Danny Osmond, just did a three-part series on why executives should be podcasting. Want to give your company a brand or a face? Want to connect with current or future employees? Are you interested in pivoting out of your current position and into a new career or personal brand? Well, if you're an executive who is podcast curious, head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives and learn how a podcast builds credibility, how podcasting gives you a leg up against the competition, and how a podcast can power a speaking career and help you write a book. Don't worry about finding the time to listen. Each episode is less than 10 minutes and Danny has put all three episodes in one place. Head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives to listen and find more resources. That's dannyosmond.com forward slash executives. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan. If you want to learn more about him, his career journey, the resources associated with his website, all of that good stuff, you can check out our show notes. And if you want to go directly to the link, it's laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 68. Let's Fix Work is produced by Emerald City Productions. Danny Osmond is the guy that makes the show sound great. Thanks, Danny. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback for our show, hit us up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for this episode, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.